0: Polar Pro, challenging the boundaries set by traditional camera gear. Polar Pro is a team of designers who are trailblazing creative freedom for storytellers everywhere. PolarPro.com Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of November 22nd, 2019. This week, we're doing stories in the in a new order. Tech News is our lead story. Apple has released a 16-inch MacBook Pro, and there's a lot to talk about there. Our next story is actually breaking news. I just learned about it this morning. I don't even think it's on the website yet. The the DOJ has announced they're going to rescind the Paramount decrees. We're going to talk about that. There are huge implications there for the film industry and some amazing and ridiculous quotes. And then we're going to wrap it up with an Ask No Film School about what camera should you buy as a B camera. All that this week on the No Film School Podcast. I'm Charles Hain.
1: I'm George Edelman.
0: And we'll see you after the break. All right,
1: so the first
0: story this week, Apple has released a MacBook Pro 16-inch. Now, to be clear, it's not that there's going to be a 13, a 15, and a 16. They've replaced the 15 with a 16. It's roughly the same size as the old 15-inch. It's like a millimeter thicker, but it's a bigger screen with less bezel. But there's a bunch of features in here that are so clearly targeted at pros. And I'm just going to do full disclosure. Uh, Apple is very secretive, but no film school was lucky enough. We got invited to a sort of day of release event. We're not in that rarefied era where we get to play with stuff weeks in advance like some people. But we got invited to a really nice event that was day of in Tribeca. Um, I think someone from Pro Video Coalition was there. Popular Mechanics folks were there. And it was, you know, we were led to a variety of stations. We got to type on the laptop. They were very clear to have a typing station, which was, you know, they know they fucked up that keyboard and they're really excited about being back to it. And there were a lot of time for Q&A. There was a lot of time to see the laptop in a variety of different environments. And I got to say, honestly, uh, I use this analogy a lot. And maybe it's old, but whatever. Uh, For a long time, it felt like the pros were the sort of first wife or first husband that was supporting Apple in the 90s. And then Apple found the sexy new consumer market in 2018 with the – 2008 with the iPhone and just dropped us. Like, it did feel like that. Like, it felt like a lot of the pro stuff didn't show the attention to detail. And I honestly have to say, the last couple of years, I hated the 2016 MacBook Pro. All of its improvements (laughs) felt like step backwards. It's the meanest thing I've ever written on No Film School, that review. I have to say the 2018 MacBook Pro, which I spent about a year with last year and now the 2019 16 inch feel like they're putting a lot of very interesting, legitimate thought into making a pro laptop because it is still the pro choice. I still go to film sets and I'll see 12 of the 15 inches lined up on like various like the DIT station, the producers table, like it is still the dominant choice for filmmakers. And I feel like they're really taking that very seriously And, you know, I'm still using my 2013 MacBook Pro because I like the NVIDIA. I honestly feel like this is the one where I will probably do the permanent upgrade because of a lot of, like, weird, interesting little things they did on this one that I think are a big step forward. First off, we still have a touch bar. I still hate the touch bar because I think it's useless. I still wish I had function keys. This is one of those things that I'm just going to compromise on with Apple. They seem to think the touch bar is cool fine um i got you i had a 2018 for about a year i said i always like own the newest apple laptop and then i try and sell it around right before the new one comes out i sold my 2018 super early i sold it way back in august like three months before this one came out so i i didn't time it right um i've, I've been on. let me 20. ask
1: you a quick question um also based on your post on what you wrote up about it um you mentioned two things that i think would have a pretty big impact on my choice about whether or not to purchase and i think a lot of a lot of people out there. Um, the audio coming out of the laptop, as well as the mic, right? These are two things that I noticed in the review. And I thought, Oh, wow, that's actually uh, those are reasons to really consider it because it makes it a more versatile machine. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. And here's the thing. If I had just read that,
0: or seen it in a demo on stage, I don't think I would give a shit. Because as a filmmaker, I don't really Yeah. I should I'm not You're supposed not gonna, to care.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <how the laughs> and You're not going to rely on it. But it affects but. that I think that's what I'm talking about. It makes it more horizontally appealing if that makes any sense like it stretches it a little bit beyond just the purpose as a filmmaker. It makes it more versatile. So you you could be you you could excuse it. As, like, yeah, well, it's good for me as a filmmaker, but it also, like, has these other added bonuses that, like, if I want to do VO or if I want to do a podcast or if I want to watch a movie, you know. But, I mean, beyond that, even even as a
0: pro tool, having listened to it in person, I'm going to say I think the microphone and the speakers are a legitimate game changer. And, you know, because here's the thing. In reality, I want to say, all right, well, you should only be listening on MDR 7502, Sony reference monitors, and that's the only way you should listen to your audio, and you should make sure the volume there is correct. And in reality, how many times have we like, oh, a new cuts in, and then we flip open the laptop, and we watch it with the people in the room. Like, that happens all the time. And, like, if we acknowledge the reality of our workflows, the reality of our workflows are we don't always – Uh, review our work in the best possible environment. So, like, yes, technically, you should be hooking it up to, like, studio monitors to really hear the audio. The audio is so good on this thing that I think it will affect your experience watching review cuts, especially if it's with a team, especially if you can't plug in your headphones and there's, like, four of you in the room and a new cut comes in. The speakers sound really, really, really good. And, you know, they did a little hokey demo where there was, like, a Dell – Maybe I won't say that brand. Whatever. Don't cut that out. There were, there were two other competing laptop brands, and you would stand in front of each one and listen. And it's like, it sounded amazing. It is an impressively nice-sounding laptop. I mean, one thing with Apple is they've always sort of limited volume on the laptops. In fact, there's an app called Boom to get more volume out of your laptop because their Ooh, Apple cool laptops... Tip. are Yeah, Boom. It's a, I've, I've had Boom for like five years. It's great. Um, I might not even need Boom on the 2016. And then the other thing is that microphone... You know, obviously these were controlled tests they were playing, but they were playing you back something recorded on a normal laptop microphone, then recorded on a Blue Yeti, uh, which is what I'm recording on right now, and then recorded on the laptop microphone. And here's the thing. I've been in an edit suite so many times where it's like nine o'clock at night and we're like, oh, fuck, you know what the VO should be? The VO should be this. And like the ability to just immediately scratch that into the laptop and not have it sound terrible is kind of huge. And, you know, I like I totally have been like, oh, let's see if anybody's in the audio booth or if you're in a smaller post house with no audio booth. You're like, let me see if we can find something to like hang a curtain or whatever to make it sound good. And it's like, I don't know. I really think that there's a there is something interesting about Apple deciding to put so much effort into a really great sounding mic and nice sounding speakers. I think it is a legitimate force modifier for the laptop. Um,
1: I think what it what it, said, what it speaks to is that they're paying attention to the needs of people who are a little bit closer to doing things one-person band style yeah. because they're creating the capacity for you to not be in a post suite and have access to a million high-end tools uh, means that you can play back and record yourself On the machine that you're using to do all the other work at the same time in the same place without, you know, it makes it, it just creates flexibility. And I think they're thinking with this, this, what it sounds like to me is that this, with this product, they're thinking about people who are doing, creating content faster on the go with less invested in hardware, right?
0: Yeah, there's a really interesting TechCrunch... Oh, before I get into the TechCrunch article, I'm just going to point out, I'm trying to make the term one mule team happen instead of one man yeah, band. Yeah, I know. I'm working on it. It's I, hard. I, it's not going anywhere, but I'm going to keep good. rolling that one up a hill.
1: It's it's good. And we've talked about this before. Yeah. And I just like, one man band just is so... <laughs> is just captures it. So I always yeah. start one uh, one human band. <laughs> yeah. I feel <laughs> yeah. You. Anyway. I feel you. Regardless,
0: the... um. Uh, There was a great TechCrunch article two years ago that made, like, no news in the, uh, like, professional filmmaker space. I think because there wasn't anything... You know, there was there wasn't anything I could originally report or do a take on. It was just a very thorough TechCrunch piece, and I was like, Oh, that's interesting. I might have tweeted it, but like I couldn't really do an article about it because I didn't have anything firsthand to say. But the TechCrunch article was really interesting because what it was really all about was Apple had built and I think it was implied that it was pretty new. Apple had built like a pro an internal pro testing center where they were working with You know, they were bringing in pro musicians, pro filmmakers, pro VFX artists, and then they were observing them like it was a full on observational study of we have engineering teams just watching you work. And we're looking at like, oh, I see you're waiting a lot at this stage or like I see when you put this plug on in Final Cut, it takes a while. Like and they were and the Tunk Crunch article was really about that. They were super obsessed with micro improvements, that it wasn't about. Like, we want to make one glacial improvement that speeds up your renders by 150%. It was like, how many little tiny improvements can we make to make it a more fluid experience? And I think we're seeing a lot of the results of that rolling out in this 2019 MacBook Pro, where you're seeing a lot of things where you're like, oh, we have a physical escape key because developers really need that. And we're going to sort of compromise with developers. We believe the touch bar can be great but we're going to let developers have that escape key they so desperately need. Uh, they also moved the touch bar a little bit away from the rest of the keys, which is super appreciated because I accidentally hit the touch bar a lot. And um, there were there was another really interesting thing, and I think I hit on this in the monitor, but one thing they mentioned was a little bit of XDR news. So uh, the XDR monitors, the $6,000 Apple monitor that comes with a $1,000 stand, um, and the internet really enjoyed that. But, uh, you know, so one thing that you... DaVinci Resolve has never had a full screen mode, meaning it has a full screen mode like you can command F and you can full screen your the image you're working on in Resolve. But your UI goes away. You can't make color changes. You can't make any of those tweaks. You can't see what clip you're on because it's really like the full screen mode previously in Resolve was really like, here's for playback. We're going to watch it for playback for edit. You there was no mode in Resolve where I could have my timeline on one screen and I could have my image full screen on another, which Premiere does and Media Composer does and Final Cut does, but Resolve never did. And the reason why Resolve Mm -hmm. didn't is because, you know, your monitor's not color accurate. And I think Resolve being a color grading program first was very careful to be like, no, 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 you don't want to color grade. Based on your computer monitor, you need to be out to an external broadcast monitor. So if you're color grade, like, because otherwise it'd be too tempting. I have two monitors, I full screen on one, and uh, I have my UI on another, and I can color grade to that image. And in the presentation, and it was almost an aside, they showed that Resolve's new build has a UI one screen. Your image full screen on another screen and they said it was built directly for the XDR monitor. Now, does it only work with the XDR monitor? Can it tell there's an XDR monitor there? Who knows? Can it? Is the XDR monitor color accurate when working with Resolve software so that we can just color grade without going out to an SDI box? I would be very shocked, but maybe. And I'm really like I I am dying to get my hands on the XDR monitor to to test if that is actually a usable workflow that is coming for us in the near future, because if so, that is like kind of an amazing leap forward for filmmakers who want to be able to see their image accurately on their screen. Uh, it's it's sort of a a huge big deal. Yeah. Oh, and then the SDR the. I think we all just accept the SD card slot's not coming back. Fine. I mean, you know, I still shoot a lot of <laughs> SD card cameras. I just went and I like, I bought like four USB-C to SD card readers. Look, I get it. You know, like SD isn't even the most dominant standard anymore. There's XQD and CFast are really taking off for bigger cameras. And there's a variety of things. I get it. There's a It's, it's a small enough portion of the market that they want to get rid of it. God, do I love in my 2013, like if I forgot an SD card reader, I'd just stick it right in the uh, laptop. I'm going to miss that. But I think the power you're getting out of the 2019, I mean, it was crazy to watch some of those things where on a laptop you're playing like 8K ProRes RAW or, you know, on the laptop, 4K ProRes 444, dropping it in Resolve it's hitting 29.97, you just hit the space bar and it's playing back. 444 is very processor intensive, 4k 444 is hungry. So playing that on a laptop, the laptop didn't seem to struggle, dropping on a noise correction node, seeing like six to eight frames per second playback on noise correction on a laptop for 4k footage was nuts. So I feel like the power is getting worth it that I will live without the SD card slot and I will just buy more SD card readers and like put one in all of my book bags just so they're always around. And, so it's um,
1: worth the it's worth the switch for you. The, I mean, the, the I think
0: I, I the think the ones. 2019 is the time where you're like, okay, like the 2013s, 2014s, the Nvidia ones are getting old enough. The keyboard is nice enough. The keyboard felt good enough. Uh, you know, I hope I hope we don't have like you know because the 2018s the keyboard felt a little better than the 16, but then it had that weird repeating key issue. I hope there's not like something looming in the future waiting for us. But since it's basically the same key technology as the Magic Keyboard from 2015, I feel like we might be okay on this keyboard. Yeah, I mean, I think we're back. I think Apple, I you know, I, I've given Apple a hard time for certain things in the past. But I the fall of 2019 feels like a good time for Apple's treatment of professional users. Polar Pro, a company that strives to challenge the boundaries set by traditional camera gear, have engineered a brand new product into their flagship lineup. While setting out to make a splash in the cinematography space, Polar Pro has created an ultra lightweight matte box system called Basecamp, which was designed to cater to the needs of a run and gun cinematographer. Most creatives within the photo and video industry strive to be seen as professional cinematographer rather than just another creator in a saturated market. Just like in mountaineering, Basecamp is the point in the journey that separates the professionals from the rest of the pack that has made it this far. When using the Basecamp filter system, it will enable you to elevate your content as you ascend towards the goal of ultimate professionalism. So the question is, are you going to join the ascent? Head to our Instagram stories to check out Polar Pro's new map box and be part of the climb. Okay, on to our next story, and this one's nuts. So, I'm going to quote yeah. a few times here from a couple of different sources, but the one I'm going to start with is a really great article from Gizmodo. If you guys aren't Gizmodo fans, it's a it's a great sort of tech blog. And um, basically, what is happening, Makan Delrahim, who is the antitrust division chief at the Department of Justice, has announced that they plan on rolling back the Paramount, um, the Param- what do- The Paramount Decrees. So, uh, Makan Del Rahim has announced that they're going to roll back. They're planning on rolling back the Paramount Decrees, which date to a 1940 Supreme Court case, United States versus Paramount Pictures.
1: This is a huge story for filmmakers and the future of filmmaking. Even if it sounds at first like Department of Justice, like what? (laughs) Supreme Court. But this is dates back to really the birth of independent film. Let's first talk about what United States versus Paramount Pictures was designed to do.
0: So basically, in the 30s, the movie studios owned both the means of production and the theaters. So you will regularly drive around town and you'll still see theaters that say, like, the Paramount Theater or whatever. That was owned by Paramount Studios. Paramount Studios had a studio, which was both a physical location, like you can go to Paramount Studios Hollywood, and a chain of theaters. And a whole division, writing scripts and doing posts. And, you know, they had their own camera divisions. One of the reasons why a lot of, like, the camera rental houses all date from the 50s and 60s is because the, before the 50s or 60s, the cameras were just owned by the studios. They just had them. Right? So it was this whole big integrated system. And what vertical, that led... Vertical. a <laughs> integration. Monopoly. Yeah. And yeah. What, led, what that led to is a lot of situations where, uh, you know, there were two big things. One was block booking. Like if a theater wanted to book a specific movie, a lot of times because the studios had so much power, they'd say like, oh, so you want to book, uh, you know, our number one big hit movie. You also have to play these three other movies we produced that are kind of garbage, but you got to play them in your theater anyway. So that's block booking. It is a... Uh, it's no longer allowed under the Paramount uh, decrees, but its a it was a tactic that studios would use to mitigate their risk, right? We're going to make a bunch of movies. We know some are going to be good, some are going to be bad, but it doesn't matter because we can guarantee no matter what, we can force the theaters into showing them. You would also run into a... I think a, the... Oh, yeah, ahead.
1: I was just going to say real quick, the other thing to keep in mind about, about this and the other elements Charles is going to present here is that the studio system... The studio was a movie factory, but it was end to end, so there was no room for an independent business to succeed did oh even yeah. exist. So it was like Paramount, MGM, uh, Warner Brothers. Um, what were the other big ones? Uh, I'm blanking, but like Universal. the big studios, Universal. Yeah, of course, Fox. They would create everything from conception to delivery to um, exhibition. And they had total control. So there was no business like a rental house or an independent production company or even an actor having their own. Like everybody was, everyone worked within that power structure. And that would always come down to like one person, like the studio mogul. So I'll let you continue. But that, like just to give everyone a sense, if you don't know the context of what, of what this, this was about breaking up that power structure.
0: And so even if, You know, even like and so the studios all had relationships with each other, of course. Right. So, you know, theaters were free to show movies from other studios. There were studios that got along better than others. But like if you're in a little if you're in a small town, um, I'm just going to say. Jackson, Tennessee, because why not? Maybe you're a one theater town in the 30s. You're not only and you have a Paramount Theater, you're not only going to see Paramount movies, you might see Universal or Fox picture, because the studios all get along with each other, you're going to see mostly Paramount movies. But if there's a big hit through, Paramount wants to make money off that too. And there's situations where they can negotiate for that. However, there is no incentive for those studios to allow outside independent producers into this closed up system. So it was incredible. Like there was basically no indie movies before the fifties there were, but it was very hard for them to get shown in traditional movie theaters because the traditional movie theaters were not interested in letting people into that game. So it was a, it was a very closed system that offered very few opportunities for outsiders, uh, to come along make something and have it find an audience. Um,
1: And this is a fascinating development at this particular moment in time because a lot of major power players, like Disney, for example... Has, have just started creating and owning a new means of distribution, like Disney Plus, for example. Which so is as, which
0: is a return to the studio system, where they have the exactly. distribution platform and they're doing the making.
1: now. And, and let's oh. think about what, what it's a reaction to. It's a reaction to the fact that there's become this major democratization of the process and of how things are seen. Because if anyone can create something, and anyone can... And anyone can get it onto a streaming platform that can be in front of anyone else, and anyone can, like YouTube. Like, you don't even need to have a distributor. Now, the question about whether or not you can direct eyeballs there, but that threat, I think, is part of what's motivating this kind of return to the – what's the right term for it? The top-down, like, owning every every platform and putting exactly what you want in front of the most people and not what – independent creators are putting out there.
0: Yeah. But the most, I mean, so some could argue that the content that the paramount decrees matter even more and maybe should be applied to entities like Disney plus and whatnot, where it is one megalithic creator or studio that isn't allowing other people in. One could argue that right. But instead the D the DOJ is arguing, and this is (laughs) fucking batshit. The DOJ is arguing, uh, Delrahim argues We have determined that the the decrees, as they are, no longer serve the public interest because the horizontal conspiracy, the original violation animating the decrees, has been stopped. That's insane. That's like saying, (laughs) so we passed a law about murder and murders went down and now we don't really have these murders. So I guess we can get rid of the law about murders? That's that's It would be like
1: saying the murder rate is low enough that we're not worried about preventing it anymore because we feel that like everyone – everyone will keep it here, even without the law, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like, it, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a very strange statement. And I think that- It's ridiculous. Um, we created this and law and it had
0: its intended effect, so let's get rid of it.
1: <laughs> I think what's, what's really crazy about it, though, is it's at a time, like we just said, when these heavyweights are flexing. They're go- they're- they may be handed even more power. So, what happens when Disney now, like, so Disney does own the El Capitan, right? Um, like, that's a theater in Los Angeles. What happens is, like, Disney's gonna own theaters around Disneyland and maybe all over the place, but, but what are they gonna show? Disney movies (laughs) just like so like the idea like let's let's talk about another really relevant story in this world that we're, we're covering on the site continually and we'll be talking about again on the podcast this whole Martin Scorsese versus Marvel but which is really Martin Scorsese versus like the modern blockbuster and the tentpole franchise how does that play into this well that's a filmmaker talking about how theaters Really, only are incentivized to show these major, far-reaching, like four-quadrant blockbuster movies, and there and there's less room in the theaters for um, movies like the kinds he wants to make, or even on, farther down the ladder from him, you know, without Robert De Niro and that don't cost 140 million dollars. So, what this is is it's, it's going to exacerbate that situation because. Not only is there going to be like financial incentive for someone like theaters to only run like the big Disney movies, but if the theaters are owned by Disney, well, then why would they ever run the little smaller movies that aren't going to make a lot of money and they have nothing to do with, right?
0: So here's my one, one like reasonable counter argument, which is I remember, was it a year ago, Netflix or Amazon was going to buy the sunshine in New York? Do you remember that? I
1: don't know. No, I don't know that story. Um, And I don't
0: remember why it didn't work out, but I suspect part of the reason why it didn't work out is the Paramount Decrees. Because, and I could be totally wrong here. Disney's El Capitan in Hollywood is a movie theater, but they always have a live show component. And I always thought that that was how they got around the Paramount Decree. Maybe. Because literally, if you go see anything at El Capitan, there's a 30-minute live show before the movie.
1: And yeah, I, somebody, if you, if you, if if a listener knows, let us know. Is yeah, i really Does anyone curious. have that any that insight into how show. they got around it?
0: Um, so maybe this is all Disney lawyers pushing to get rid of the Paramount Decree so they don't have to keep paying those actors to do the live show. You never know. <laughs> um, but the interesting thing about this is I remember thinking, you know, Netflix buying, like, the rumor was maybe they were going to buy all of Landmark or they were just going to buy the Sunshine. There was stuff going around. I think there was an article at No Film School about it. And then it didn't come to pass And I'm like 90% sure the Paramount Decrees were part of it. And so there's an argument We're rolling back the Paramount Decrees does offer an opportunity for Apple to pick up some theaters, Netflix to pick up some theaters, Amazon to pick up some theaters. And then, you know, Amazon has done really well with uh, movies that went on to an Oscars. They tend to bet on a couple of those horses every year. The ability to have their own sort of indie chain to do that with would be interesting. The ability for... What would
1: scare me, though, still, though, I, I... I, that's an interesting point, but it still means that um, they're going to have original content that they're going to prioritize, and that's how they're going to, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, they, like all these companies are creating content that they're going to say, like, this is this is what we want to have shown. Look, here's like a weird small scale version of this that that I've experienced in my lifetime. Uh, the new Beverly Theater in Los Angeles, God bless it, independently owned and operated is yeah, it's. Uh, it's a magical place. And it used to do double features. You know, they would get whatever prints they could get their hands on, very cheap, two for one. Um, saw a lot of the greatest old movies ever. $5 in the for there, The Conformist
0: and Last Tango in Paris. Such a great yeah, Saturday and you, afternoon.
1: Yeah. And you could see things that you could never see on the theater. And it was just amazing and magical. And so it was suffering and going under, and the place was falling apart. And Quentin Tarantino. Uh, loved it, saved it. But here's the interesting thing to me, and it's still great. They still show all manner of older movies, but they have a heavy lean on showing his personal prints of his movies. So a lot of the calendar is, you know, you can see Hateful Eight or you can see Kill Bill or you can see, you know, Grindhouse. Like he's, he is curating and a lot of it is his content. And, you know, like I love Quentin Tarantino movies, but I, kind of liked it more when more of the calendar was just, oh, we're going to do the Maltese Falcon in the big sleep. <laughs> like like when every selection was like agnostic, if that makes sense. And I think that's kind of on a small scale what we're talking about. Once you're a theater owner and you're cr- in the business of creating, well, what are you going to put first? What are you going to prioritize? And that's the problem. Yeah. It's just
0: everything is changing so quickly.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's just, it. We're, we are witnessing a time when I think these factors are all playing into one another. This is a major development, and uh, we're seeing how the democratization of the process has, has created a little anxiety for some of the, the larger players. And these are the kinds of things that can happen to give them back a major advantage. Okay, up next,
0: Ask No Film School. AVP asks, and AVP, we prefer full names if we can get them. What fixed lens camera should I use alongside my 5D Mark II as a B-cam? I have a 5D Mark II, and I'm looking at different options for a B-cam. I'm thinking maybe Canon C100. But then maybe I would consider something like a Sony uh, Z190 might be good since it's 4K and it's fixed lens. And here's the argument I want to make for you. And this is an argument that I'm going to make not just to you, AVP, AVB. This is for literally every filmmaker. The closest you can get your two cameras together in terms of, like, literally, if you could buy two successive serial numbers from the faculty, from the factory, you're going to have the easiest time matching them in post. Yes, technically, if you have time in post and you use the DaVinci Resolve Color Managed Workflow... You can take two different cameras from two different generations and match them together pretty well. We've all worked on projects where that's happened. But what ends up happening is it just ends up eating a lot of completely wasted time. Like you're in a position right now where you own a 5D Mark II. For B camera... If you could buy another 5D Mark II, that would be my number one recommendation because then you have two ideally identically matched cameras. You know, if you could look at your serial number and see if you could find one made at the factory at this around the same time, you're gonna be happier. But even short of that, your first suggestion, the C100, I would go for that way over Sony. Because here's the thing, different brands are always going to have different ways they process colors, different latitudes. And then a fixed lens camera tends to have a smaller sensor, not always true, but often true. So the smaller sensor versus, you know, it's a full frame sensor in the 5D Mark II, it's really big. Those are going to look differently from each other. And for me, it's all about, like, I want to spend as much time in post as possible doing a beautiful color grade that is emotionally evocative for the story. If I have to spend half my time trying to make A camera and B camera, which are two different brands, match each other, it's wasting time that could be spent on creativity. I, you know, I remember a time where, like, I worked on so many jobs where it was like, yeah, we had an Alexa for A camera. And then the director owned a 5D Mark II, so we used that for B camera. And then, you know... That somebody brought out their iPhone and we got some cool C camera stuff with it. Can we make it work? And it's like technically you can, but then you're spending 80% of your time with the colorist making the shots match. Whereas you want to spend 80% of your time with the colorist like telling the story with the images and the color grade. So if you haven't bought a camera yet, I would say C100 is probably your best bet. But honestly, there's no shame in the 5D Mark II. That episode of House was shot on it. Like maybe you go 5D Mark IV or something like that. But try and stay within brand at bare minimum. And then similar sensor size, similar generation, next step, I think you're going to be way better off. There are exceptions, but usually the exceptions are I deliberately want all the cameras to feel differently for personality. But if you're not deliberately trying to do that, if you want them to feel similar, start with similar cameras. You'll be way happier.
1: Follow-up question for you about this if you're trying to like if you're limited like you kind of laid out like a best case scenario and then like s- like one number off on the serial number and then you laid out like uh stay within the same brand or sensor size what would be like if you have to take like a budget approach what's like your bare bones like best case like if you have to prioritize just one thing and 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 it may not be brand like Brand?
0: Yeah, I would go brand, but two different sensor sizes and two different generations, because the brands put a lot of energy into maintaining a pretty consistent color science year over year. They really want to make sure their colors match each other. If you're Canon, you have, you know, you have big corporate clients and big news clients who are buying 50 of your cameras over 20 years, and they want to make sure they intercut. If you're Sony, you have big corporate clients as well. So they're really about The most robust color science they can, but they're never going to, you know, it's rare that a camera is going to come out from one of those companies that's like, and this will match nothing from our previous past. There's usually a way to make a camera from a company sort of match other cameras from that company it's when you start running cross brand that you run into issues so i is, would take
1: is part of that also that they want to maintain a brand identity or is it really just motivated by we have hit generations of cameras that people are going to use and we want them to stay with us so why would we change anything dramatic in
0: that i mean sense? i think it's not why would we change anything dramatic it's that like you know, a lot of these big corporate clients, they'll have like 50 cameras and they'll buy 10 a year or something. So last year, you know, the 40 old ones and the 10 new ones have to look reasonably similar to each other yeah. as part of the package. So they have to change things really slowly over time to not abandon right. everything that came before, as opposed to, um, I think there is some marketing aspect of that. I know Canon is very proud of the way their skin tones reproduce, um, I know that there are, that Aeroflex in specific is like hugely proud of their color reproduction. So there is a little bit of like brand marketing in it, but I also think it's a lot about intercutability between generations.
1: Makes sense. I mean, I think that everyone would prioritize getting the same camera, but I think that uh, I wouldn't know, I wouldn't have known necessarily that staying within brand was more important than staying within like generation, if that makes sense. Generation that, or like, even you know, sensor
0: size. Like, I would take yeah, a Canon size. with a Super 35 and a Canon full frame and intercut them more quickly than I would do two Super 35, one Sony, one Canon.
1: Good to know. What about yeah. an iPhone? Just throwing an iPhone in there? And then... I mean, look, we've. I mean, <laughs> iPhone shows up in a lot of stuff. There's. Here's the thing. If you're smart about it, there's
0: an iPhone shot in the Departed. Um, you know, it's the, right. it's the close-up of the fastened seatbelt sign. And it's the perfect example. I think it's on a screen for like 18 frames. And it's like, the, uh, you know, it's like, it's a very, it's not a high contrast situation. It's not shooting out the window where it would clip out. It's literally just a quick insert of the Fasten Seatbelt sign coming on. It's the perfect kind of thing you can just grab on your iPhone without thinking. And, you know, we're going to see more and more of those little like insert cutaway kind of things. It's just like a true B camera could be like 20, 30, 40% of the edit. And that's where you're going to start running into situations where the iPhone is just going to bone you. Where you're like, oh, yeah. you know, it, it can't focus as close or it can't handle the latitude. Although I hear great things about the Elm Pro. I haven't shot with it yet. Um, but it's still not going to give you all the manual control you'd get out of something like a 5D2. Cool. All right, that's been another week of the No Film School podcast. You should check out NoFilmSchool.com for amazing articles about all of this stuff we're talking about. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Charles Hayne, and you can follow uh, my only tech news all the time, nerds, cast, The Week in Film Tech. Oh, and my pot, my, I have two books out, and they're both, if you go to Rutledge.com and you use the promo code ADS19, they're 30% off, uh, Color Grading 101, and, uh, Business and entrepreneurship for filmmakers. They're both 30% off through the holidays from Rutledge.
1: And I'm George Edelman, editor in chief at No Film School. And you can follow me at George Edelman on Twitter. You can follow us at No Film School on Twitter. Check out our Facebook page and head over to nofilmschool.com. We have a lot of cool stuff going on. We have a big feature on advertising and the different methodologies that have been used over the years and how effective they are. And it includes an infographic on the 20 most effective ways to advertise. It's pretty cool. We have a couple stories up on Ford first ferrari which came out this last weekend one about how it survived development hell another about how they shot a lot of the chase sequence with the dp it's an interview um, we have more stuff coming this week uh, about the irishman and about this big doj story so check it out and uh we'll see you soon